follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Well, if you have ever been a victim of a fraud, you know it's very difficult to determine steps to take to recover your losses. Most of us understand that, of course, reporting the fraud is the first step, but first you have to know where to, where to report it, what law enforcement agency, what legal authority. You might have been a victim of a Ponzi scheme, an internet scam, you purchased something from somebody you thought was a trustworthy source. So what options are available to you? And today my guests are white-collar criminal defense attorney Mark Mermelstein and noted private investigator Olivia Robinson to offer us practical advice. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about Mark. Mark's a trial attorney and a partner at Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe. He specializes in complex litigation and white-collar criminal defense and is admitted to practice in both California and New York. He's graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, magna cum laude, and he served as the clerk for Honorable Jane R. Roth, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. For the past seven years, the Los Angeles Magazine and Southern California Super Lawyers Rising Star Edition have voted Mark a rising star in Southern California. He's currently the editor of the Pennsylvania Law Review and has received commendation for his participation in the Pro Bono Civil Rights Panel, U.S. District Court, Central District of California. Mark's main focus in his trial work is representing corporations and individuals facing allegations of security fraud, health care fraud, antitrust violations, money laundering, environmental crimes, mail and wire fraud, embezzlement, and violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So when Mark gives advice, he really knows what he's talking about. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us today. And then my second guest is California private investigator Olivia Robinson. For 30 years, Olivia has been conducting critical, time-sensitive research projects for corporations and investigators uh, Investors, I'm sorry, not investigators, worldwide. She conducts investigations in support of court-appointed receiverships. She also assists with informed decision-making during a merger or acquisition or restructuring or a turnaround of some sort. She's uncovered fraud and criminal activity, exposed transactional misrepresentations, diagnosed industry or company performance issues, and determined all kinds of factors affecting reputation of a company and their profitability. 
She's authored numerous articles on Ponzi schemes, hard money loan scams, due diligence, and tracking assets. She's a member of the California Receivers Forum, and as she reports, Olivia works on cases of all kinds of subjects related to scoundrels, skullduggeries, and those conducting business mischief. I love that, Olivia. (laughs) Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. So, Olivia, people always want to know how an individual becomes a private investigator. What was your background before becoming a PI? Well, I have a master's degree in geomorphology, which is the study of landforms. So it's very far afield. But I was in the oil and gas industry uh, when it tanked in 1982. And I hung out my shingle on my own um, because the oil and gas industry wasn't ripe anymore. And uh, started doing work in strategic planning, helping companies plan for their future. And often uh, during that process, CEOs or executives would have questions about what their competitors were doing and um, why somebody was interested in acquiring them, and I became very good at answering those questions. And so it really evolved from looking at corporations and competitors and the competitive environment to uh, what I do today, which is very different. because I, my focus isn't necessarily exclusively on corporations. It's hmm. far more on the individuals that are involved in, um, in deals. And the deals that I look at today are primarily scams of one kind or another. So it's, it's been an evolution over the 30 years. Well, there's certainly no uh, – there are many scams out there to work with, for sure. Uh, so so how did you get your license then? Well, you know, I was grandfathered in in Washington, and then I uh, had to take the license here in California. And it was very difficult because it was, didn't relate to anything that I uh, had in my uh, repertoire of uh, mm. history. And so, I, in fact, I failed it twice before ultimately passing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually I got my California license and um, have been, as I say, focusing on uh, fraud and white-collar crime uh, investigations for the last probably six or seven years. Yeah, right. That's what you were doing when I met you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. So, um so I, I want everybody to just jump in here. This is just like we're sitting around the kitchen table having coffee. Um, what are some of the situations you both have gotten involved in and in trying to help crime victims? Well, uh, one of the ones uh, that I got involved in was a situation where a uh, gentleman uh, purchased a phony Picasso. He, uh, he had uh, paid out about $2 million for uh-huh. – a painting that was probably worth about uh, 50 bucks. Was it a copy? It, it, it was a copy. It was very, it, it wasn't intended to be an exact duplicate of something. It was uh, slightly different, uh, intentionally so, from, uh, from an actual uh, Picasso. Hmm. And how did that evolve, that case evolve? Well, the, the, the biggest question was what to do about it. Um, <clears throat> one option would have been to sue the gallery that uh, that he had uh, bought it from, uh, and sue the middleman that had arranged uh, had arranged the sale. Uh, the problem there is you end up um, 
you could chase, you could spend a lot of money very quickly um, as uh, as the fraudster essentially moves their money around, and you you really might get left with uh, nothing at the end of the day. Even if you get a judgment uh, against the uh, against the gallery owner, there just may be no assets to collect. Hmm. So then, where do you take that from? Take it from there. Well, what uh, what we did in that situation was we said, well, maybe there's another way to do this. And um, what we did was we um, did a little investigation, packaged uh, packaged it up, and then brought the matter over to uh, a, a colleague of ours at the uh, the FBI and uh, another colleague at the U.S. Attorney's Office who happens to uh, have an interest in uh, art going back a number of years mm-hmm. and um, essentially got the prosecutor to file criminal charges against the uh, against the gallery owner um, the beauty of that was that alongside with the criminal charges they brought forfeiture and action which means when they went into the gallery to arrest the gallery owner they seized a whole bunch of other paintings which actually had some value mm-hmm. these were pa- paintings that had been purchased with the criminal proceeds and so by law the government can forfeit that Take it and then literally uh, give it to the victim to satisfy the, the injury that the victim has suffered. Mm-hmm. So right then and there, even before uh, any, uh, any any trial or any conviction, um, assets uh, are in the government's possession. That uh, if the ultimate uh, trial is successful and, and the government gets a conviction, those assets are going back to uh, the victim. Oh, that's great. That's a great uh, result for the victim. Was he able to recover all of his money or just a portion? Well, the other the other part of it is um, so we get a call um, a few days before uh, ultimately the the, uh, the the fraudster uh, pled guilty. Here, there really wasn't uh, wasn't much dispute over that, and uh, it's coming up to sentencing, and the fraudster is looking at a whole bunch of jail time, and the pitch. Uh, by the fraudster's lawyer was, you know, if we could um, satisfy the injury, if we could find some uh, way to pay you, the victim, some money, maybe you could come in and tell the judge, tell the sentencing judge that uh, my client's been real cooperative here and is really making attempts to uh, to, to to settle the case. Mm-hmm. And so – Rather than in a, in a civil case where we're chasing the uh, fraudster and we're chasing the assets, because it's a criminal case, the fraudster is trying to chase us to uh, to give us money back so that he can stay out of jail. Is that legal, Mark? Uh, that is absolutely legal because mm. what they're it, – it's, it's – it's what it is is criminal restitution. It's the, okay. the fraudster will tell the judge, "Hey, I've made restitution. I've I've made amends." It's not a guarantee that they'll stay out of jail, but it certainly will uh, bode in favor of leniency in front of the sentencing judge to to say that they've paid back uh, the 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 harm that they've caused. Makes me wonder if he sold some other phony artwork to break the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, not that I'm suspicious. Or <laughs> so the end result was your um, the victim was made whole. 
The end result was the the victim has actually uh, a lien on a piece of real property. Um, they which ultimately when it gets uh, when, which is the gallery itself, and when it gets sold, um, they will they will be made whole. Um, and the 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 really the legal fees, which can be prohibitive in something like this, were ended sure. up being minimal because all we did was we put them in touch with the government. We let the government do the heavy lifting in terms of the um, in terms of the uh, the investigation and the prosecution. We just put them in touch, and ultimately we get a great result uh, for the client. That's that's just fabulous. It's amazing. For somebody to recover two million, I mean, so that's astonishing. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was a good uh, good case, good result. We were able to uh, to do some justice there. That's great. Now you got involved, or one of you got involved in a Nigerian um, internet scam. That uh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this must be a good one. That's that's me as well. Uh, this was a situation where a woman had uh, – she came to me. She had found herself um, having uh, paid out uh, seven figures um, to someone who approached her over the internet, uh, a real sort of tragic, uh, tragic situation. Mm-hmm. She wanted to know what, what she could do about it. To compound things, not only had she paid out her own personal monies – but she was so convinced that the uh, this this let me let me back up for those who, who may not know uh, this type of scam. It's a situation where they say there's forty million dollars in uh, some bank mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in Nigeria or somewhere else, and all the ancestors are uh, are are dead. Uh, but if you step forward and you say you're one of these ancestors, uh, then you'll be able to get the bulk of this uh, $40 million. And all you need to do is pay a few bucks to me um, to help facilitate freeing up the $40 million. Um, okay. And so she ended up uh, paying out over the course of about a year uh, north of uh, north of a million dollars. Uh, in 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 pursuit of uh, of getting the forty, uh, and she ended up borrowing a fair sum of money from a, uh, a business colleague of hers uh, to uh, to try to get uh, you know ultimately get the uh, the forty million dollars. My so, goodness, what did she tell the business colleague? <laughs> well, that was uh, actually a matter of some uh, a dispute on the civil side because when she ultimately didn't get the forty. Um, her business colleague sued her to get back the money uh, he had uh, mm. he lent her. My goodness! Well, okay. So you know what? Let's let's take a quick break because um, I, we want to hear more about this story. Our topic today: fraud victims, options, and resources with Mark Mermelstein, attorney and PI Olivia Robinson. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We've just been discussing what options and resources are available to fraud victims with P.I. Olivia Robinson and Mark Mermelstein, trial attorney with Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe. Mark, um, go ahead and, and tell us more about this Nigerian scam. This is so interesting. Well, this is a situation where uh, uh, this was a woman who, who uh, got, got pulled in over the Internet uh, with the lure of uh, being able to free up uh, a lot of uh, a lot of money. Um, and uh, at one point after she had put in uh, a fair amount of money to this, um, she actually uh, traveled to uh, traveled to Europe and was literally shown the trunk of a car where there was uh, a huge uh, there was a bag with a lot of uh, a lot of money in it, mm. and uh, that was the, the, essentially the lure to keep her going to keep uh, putting in money to try to free up all this uh, all this cash. And and what you mentioned on the break, which I think is significant, is it wasn't all one fell swoop. It was dribs and drabs of a hundred dollars here, five hundred dollars there, till she got to the one point four million that she actually lost. Right. The the um, one of the things about it was right at the front end, the the scammer got her to um, to essentially. Uh, make an untruth, which is to to make a representation to the bank or where where the money was that she was actually one of the ancestors. Um, and so, so this actually existed, really existed. Um, nobody really knows. Okay, <laughs> but but from her point of view, she's made the statement which she knows is untrue, and so when she ultimately discovers that it's a scam, and it, it's always a scam. Um, 
some of your options may be compromised because you're feeling like, well, I've already made this untruth. Who's going to believe me? Who's going to, are the police really going to help me out here? Do I want to go to the police in a situation where I've made a, a statement of questionable, uh, questionable veracity right at the front end? Sure. Interesting. <laughs> and so what I, did, she just lost the money, I guess. Yeah, we, 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 uh, enlisted the aid of a, uh, a private investigator to try to, uh, try to find out if there was anything that could be done to to go after these guys and there really wasn't i mean o- over the internet it's very hard to track down uh who uh, who was actually perpetrating this and then besides the 1.4 million she lost now her business associate has filed suit against her to recover the money he yeah. invested right and so he's uh, he's suing her for uh to try to get back the monies um, that he he, uh, he he would say he lent to her, she would say uh, she was a uh, uh, he was a business partner in this uh, in this venture. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see how that one plays out. Sounds like it's going to trial. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine. Okay, so then so then you have another situation with a, a car sale. That's mine. Okay. <laughs> and once again, it's a um, it's an online uh, fraud, and I got involved because uh, I received a call from a woman in North Carolina who had invested twenty three thousand five hundred dollars in purchasing a car online. It was advertised on um, uh, some on a uh, one of those internet. Uh, market market uh, mm-hmm. sites, mm-hmm. and um, the person that listed the car was a Nathan Green from Leist Auto, L-E-I-S-T Auto, and he claimed to be in Provo, Utah, and um, she needed, after they reached the agreement on purchasing this used uh, car, it was an SUV, um, she wired $23,500 to the bank that he designated, which was in Paulsbo, Washington. And um, she expected the car to be delivered a couple of days later. Well, the car was never delivered. So, of course, uh, my client went into overdrive trying to get the money back from the bank. And by that time, the money wasn't in the bank any longer, the, the bank that she'd wired it to. And so I uh, one of the things you mentioned, Francie, at the beginning was you need to alert the authorities. Well, she immediately called the police in North Carolina, and they wrote up a report. They never filed it with the FBI or anybody else. They just wrote it up, mm-hmm. and um, she was at her wit's end trying to figure out what to do. And then she found some blogs about car fraud, and it it came to her attention, of course, she kept trying to reach this Nathan Green, who uh, stopped answering his phones, and that on these car blogs, people were talking about Nathan Green, and mm. somebody said, well, I actually went to that address where Leist Auto is advertised being, and it's a donut shop, and so mm-hmm. um, it, it, it the more that 
she started to investigate this on her own, she realized that there were other victims. And I became involved in trying to not only identify additional victims, but identify who this Nathan Green was and um, whether he was working in conjunction with other perpetrators or on his own. Um, what we ultimately learned is that there's no Nathan Green, there's no Lyst Auto, mm -hmm. and um, it's a big it's a big ring of car scammers. And um, the the fact that her North Carolina police department didn't want, know what to do by the because we were able to find other victims, um, we got one police department talking to another police department, and mm -hmm. eventually the momentum built up so that uh, ultimately I was getting calls from police departments all over the country saying, "Tell us about this scam. I think I have a victim for you," and we're still collecting the names of uh, victims throughout the country. But what we know has happened is that this Nathan Green. Uh, forms a company, a corporation, and takes the corporate papers along with a uh, fictitious passport to a bank, opens up a corporate bank account, and then places ads for selling for uh, cars that don't exist mm -hmm. uh, online and gets people to wire funds into the bank account. And uh, it, the whole scam lasts for about a month until he gets caught and then goes on to the next one but keep and he continues to change his name and but he uses uh we believe he uses the same vin numbers so um that's one of the ways we're trying to trying to catch him mm -hmm. currently the um authorities that are involved we have as i mentioned multiple police departments throughout the country that um have victims that have uh, reported but we also have uh the FBI and we have the secret service involved because um, um, it, the wire, uh, the once the funds go to the bank in Paulsville, Washington, they immediately get wired out to someplace in Eastern Europe. So that's why we have the Secret Service involved now. Are you concerned that he might hear this show or hear of it and know that you're tracking him down? Do you know what? I hope so. Okay, good. All right. Great. Well, and I can tell you one of the things, Francie, that uh, would be wonderful as an outcome of this show is if other victims um, have been scammed by Nathan Green and Leist Auto, um, it would be wonderful to hear from them. Well, why don't you tell them how to contact you? Wonderful. Olivia Robinson, my company is Background Intelligence, and my phone number, do you want that, or an email address? Whatever you'd like to give. Our email address is robinson at backgroundintelligence.com. Okay. You want to repeat that just so they can get it? Yes. It's robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N, at backgroundintelligence.com. Okay, great. Now, um, so what should this victim have done? that she didn't do well you know in retrospect and the thing that's so strange is that she's had purchased uh, two cars previously through this advertising uh, internet advertising group and they were very successful purchases but in retrospect her comment is of course never buy a car online in or never buy a car without actually seeing it and take, having physical possession of it at the time you exchange the money good advice now, um, I guess she reported it to the police department 
and what'd you say, South Carolina? It was in North Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, she probably should have also reported it to the police department in Washington, correct? Ultimately, we did, yes. Yeah. And they, uh, they had no interest in it um, because the, uh, her police department needed to ask the Washington police department for assistance. And her police department, as I said, they were overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do. And often that's the fact. You know, she... Her loss was $23,500, and they were concentrating on bigger fish. Of course, yeah. That makes sense. And and all the police departments are, you know, they're uh, inundated with, you know, murders and rapes and, and violent crimes. So this is not a, high on the priority list. And I think the other factor um, about the police response is that because it's an Internet-driven, it even though she was – personally in their jurisdiction it, it was too far afield you know that it they it was very hard for for any individual police department to track although mm-hmm. a detective in uh southern california uh jurisdiction has been one of the most he's been one of the leaders in putting all of the uh victims together and helping me put all the victims together well, that is really often what it takes is somebody that will take interest in the situation. That's it. So good for him and yep. good for you for collecting and trying to pull all these victims together. Well, ultimately, we hope to have a class action suit. You know, if we can find enough victims, that's the goal. So, But who would you file it against? Well, that's uh, what, we're, what <laughs> we're working that's on That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Very good. Well, um, this is just uh, so interesting. More advice for fraud victims after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call one 
1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, Attorney Mark Mermelstein and Private Investigator Olivia Robinson, are discussing options and resources available for fraud victims. So, to both of you, what is the first thing you would suggest doing if somebody suspects they're a victim? Well, I can tell you that um, when I receive a call and somebody thinks that they may have been defrauded, I uh, immediately suggest that we take a look, a very cursory look, to see whether they, the person has a history of doing similar kinds of uh, – has been involved in similar kinds of activity. Um, some of the tools that investigators have allow us to determine whether a person may have multiple social security numbers or aliases, mm-hmm. uh, whether they've moved around a lot. Um, and so those are the kinds of things, whether they have a number of properties that may have been quick claim deeded to families, as an example, Mm -hmm. sort of over a certain period of time. So there are tools that enable us to have sort of a snapshot or a picture of the individual that may may in fact be a fraudster. And so we, uh, we typically look at those kinds of things, also what kind of lawsuits the person may have been engaged in, um, and to see whether there's a track record. So that's one of the first things. We look for patterns of behavior that are suspicious or similar to what uh, the client has been uh, has experienced. So uh, by hiring an investigator, uh, that can either nip it in the bud and say, you know, this is a one-time thing and you're, you might as well cut your losses or, or uh, there's something really here worth pursuing. The other thing that we look at or is part of the discussion initially is how much money was lost. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're thinking about going after assets, and one of the things that I do a lot of is looking for hidden assets um, and trying to... Uh, trying to collect on them is how much money is involved. And so there's sort of a threshold um, of loss where it it makes sense in, in trying to recover the funds. And do you recommend, Olivia, getting an attorney involved right away? Um, you know, sometimes absolutely, but sometimes uh, doing this initial step is um, sort of a prudent uh, and pretty cost-effective first step. So it kind of depends on the nature of the loss and the nature of the fraud. Okay. 
Go ahead, Mark. The big advantage uh, that you uh, you do get by getting an attorney involved right away is that the if you have an uh, attorney involved and then you have the investigator uh, being hired by the attorney, then the investigation itself would be covered under the attorney-client privilege. Exactly. Yeah. And. Uh, you never know what you're going to find when you start an investigation. You never know if uh, it turns out that the the victim might have some exposure because of something uh, something the victim did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's pretty important when you don't know yet what you're dealing with to dig in and figure out what you're dealing with, but do it under the umbrella of the privilege so that you can. Uh, if it turns out there's something that surfaces that you really don't want uh, a public, um, you have the ability to um, to, to shield it. I and agree. Then, and then, Mark, do you recommend when you meet with a client initially uh, getting a private investigator involved? A- absolutely. Um, you can't know what you're dealing with um, until you have someone uh, that digs into the facts and finds out, What's going on? Are there other victims out there? Has this uh, particular fraudster uh, done it in the past? What is the scale of what you're dealing with? Are there? Does the? Are we going to be able to get at the uh, the fraudster? Does does he or she have deep pockets? Is there someone else you can sue? You really just have to understand the the nature and scope of the issue before you can start to figure out what uh, w- whether you can help the victim. And what's the best way to help the victim? Mm-hmm. And then you, you and the private investigator work with the client together to figure out what needs to, what tasks need to be done to get to where you want to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so, what are our different avenues for a fraud victim to to gain recovery? Well, there it, it it really depends on uh, on the issue involved. But just to uh, broadly speaking, um, you can go uh, you can go to the police and uh, you can uh, try to get the police uh, to help you. Um, the the situation I was talking about earlier with the uh, with the uh, the uh, the art the Picasso. That's essentially going to the FBI. The FBI is a federal uh, police department, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so broadly speaking, you can go to the police. Uh, you can file a civil lawsuit. Um, and, or you can, uh, I suppose, you can try to uh, confront the, uh, the fraudster yourself if, uh, if you can find them. Um, those are probably the, the three uh, most common options out there. It's probably not a real good idea to confront the fraudster yourself, though, it sounds like. <laughs> not, not one that I've employed, but it, yeah. is, uh, it is out there as a yeah. possible option. And then there's agencies like the FTC and the other government agencies that you might file a cl- claim with in some way? Yeah, and the, and the best example of that is um, the uh, – if you – if you've uh, lost some uh, money in connection with an investment, for example, a lot of the Ponzi scheme, you can file a claim with the um, it's the uh, SIPC, and uh, this is a fund that uh, brokerage companies uh, pay into, and you can uh, get uh, some limited uh, monies uh, back from them. The, the Madoff investors were able to get a little bit of money back from that uh, fund. What does SIPC stand for? Securities, you know, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, off the top of my head. Securities investment, something or other. Protection, some, something like that. Okay. All right. Okay. So, um, so you can file a lawsuit. You can refer it to a prosecutor of some kind, a, a ASUA or a district attorney. Um, do you, would you be the one that would take that to the law enforcement, um, or the prosecutor type, or would that be, uh, the victim going directly? Uh, so it can really be done either way. It, it's the, 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 the important part, frankly, is to have the case worked up in, in, and really presented mm-hmm. in a nice, neat package for the police because the police, as you were, as you were saying earlier, Francie, are so overwhelmed with so many, um, you know, more heinous crimes, uh, you know, the rapes and the murders and whatnot. They just don't have the resources sometimes to work these cases up. And so if you can, uh, with the aid of a private investigator, have um, the whole case in a nice uh, package, uh, that can really get uh, get the get the prosecution uh, going far more quickly than if they're relying on the uh, the police to have to uh, work it up first. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and and two local law enforcement. I mean, FBI deals with financial crimes and all the time, and uh, I guess Secret Service does too, don't they? Um, but local law enforcement often has no training on financial crimes. Well, what we found too in uh, in this Nathan Green Leist Auto case is that um, by talking to the various uh, police departments um, about their experience and their victims' experience, and then writing up a summary and then sending a, it, the summary to each one of the law enforcement agencies. It, we uh, have maintained continuous communication about not only the individual cases and what's happened, but also what the various jurisdictions are doing. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like an ongoing story that continues to build, but we are in communication with each one of the law enforcement agencies. That's good. And and that way you get you also gain credibility. If you're staying in contact with them, you're feeding them information as you get it, uh, that certainly increases your chances of, of getting something done. And it keeps it alive in their eyes so that it you know, so that they're conscious of it. Right. Very busy. I mean we have to recognize that they're they're very busy and, and sometimes these uh, things these kind of things just aren't on their radar. So um, there was another situation um, the Queen Shoals investment scam. What was that? Oh yes, <laughs> this was. Um, uh, this came to me through, in fact, a, a colleague who said, "I'm thinking about putting some money into this investment. Uh, would you check it out?" And after spending an hour or so, um, I called him back and I said, "Please don't do it." And he said, "Oh my goodness, what's what's the deal?" And I said, "Well, you know, I looked at the um, I looked at the court filings for this invest in, investor and uh, that heads up this Queen Shoals, and um, 
I suggest that you go and take a look at the at the case records yourself so that you can see that it this is not <laughs> something you want to put your money in. And my colleague said, oh, my goodness, may I have my friend talk to you? He's put $500,000 oh, into, into Queen Shoals. And I said, yes, please have – you know, let me talk to him. So, in fact, that's what happened. And the investor that put the $500,000 in actually went to the court, got copies of the cases, and confronted Mr. Queen Shoals mm. and said, I want my money back. And Mr. Queen Shoals told him a story that um, assuring him why he should keep his money in. And the, the fellow that had put his $500,000 in kept his money in Mr. in the Queen Shoals investment. Mm. A year later the SEC closed down um, the Queen Shoals and of course the investor lost his five hundred thousand dollars. Well well and of course we've all you know we've all experienced the fallout from the Bertie Madoff um, Ponzi scheme and you, you have a Ponzi scheme down as a list of, of one of your cases. What was that? Well, you know, I work a lot on um, on Ponzi schemes. And one of the difficult things is when somebody trusts that they're placing an investment uh, or their, their money in somebody that sounds credible um, and – uh, unfortunately, I'm at the back end after they've lost either their home or they've lost their the money that they've put in. And what uh, often happens, in my from my perspective, is that people trust going in and they have no idea that uh, that the person that they're investing in may be um, operating as a group. Uh, or they may be offer, operating under multiple business names, or they may be operating uh, using multiple aliases, and they they have no concept of who, where they're really putting their money. And and from my perspective, one of the one of the trickiest things about uh, getting uh, helping folks out in connection with a Ponzi scheme, um, where they've been the victim of a Ponzi scheme, is. There are situations where even though um, the uh, the person would consider him or herself to be a victim, what has happened is they've they've invested, they've gotten some money back, um, but uh, they haven't uh, necessarily gotten all their money back, and they certainly haven't gotten the return that they were uh, promised. Let's say, mm-hmm. so they would feel like they're a victim, but the law might ne- not necessarily treat them as a victim because there may be someone else who. Uh, was far worse off having lost their entire investment. Mm-hmm. And there can be situations when this uh, the person that has, has a, a winner in some sense that they've gotten a little money back but nowhere near what they expected, that they can actually have a claim filed against them um, by someone who's far worse off. And so – as, as a lawyer involved in the situation, you have to make sure that before uh, this this person that's sort of situated in the middle here, before that person jumps in and uh, files a lawsuit, um, that you're not exposing them to a claim uh, from some another victim that's uh, that's worse off. Well, this brings up a question in my mind. So if if I had invested in something like this and then I referred it to somebody else and say and convinced them to make the investment, do I have exposure? 
Well, these are all tricky situations, which uh, which is why the first thing that you need to do is uh, perhaps have an investigator involved to uh, to figure out the facts, and you may need to talk to a lawyer to really try to figure out what what your exposure is um, before you uh, stick your head up and say uh, and, and expose yourself mm-hmm. uh, in in a very public way. Yeah. You may have been even unwittingly broken the law yourself. It, it's it's certainly possible, and that's something that you would certainly want to know before you uh, jump uh, jump headlong into uh, affirmatively trying to uh, to get your money back. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, we need to take another break, uh, Olivia and Mark. Attorney Mark Mermelstein and private investigator Olivia Robinson have been giving some excellent information. We'll be right back in a moment. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Fascinating discussion this morning with Attorney Mark Mermelstein and Private Investigator Olivia Robinson. Um, so, tell us what your words of wisdom would be if you were to narrow it down, Olivia and Mark, into a few bullet points. What would you tell people to do to uh, after they become victims? Well, I guess what what would you tell them to do to protect themselves first, and then if they became a victim of one of these scams, what would you tell them to do? 
So, Mark, go ahead. Sure. From from my perspective, uh, what I what I tell people on the on the front end is do some investigation before you uh, put your money into uh, something that that seems a little odd. You can hire uh, an, a private investigator on the front end. You can talk to an attorney uh, on the front end before you've uh, you've committed yourself, um, and then uh, if if you if you think there's a problem. Um, really, the first thing to do, I think, is uh, is talk to uh, talk to one of us, a private investigator, an attorney, uh, after the fact, to really try to figure out what you're dealing with before you uh, before you make uh, any any rash moves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's what I would say. I would um, agree totally with Mark's comments. The other thing I think it's important is uh, that every individual has their own personal threshold of um, of comfort, and often recover, trying to recover losses um, takes a long time, and it's often an emotional roller coaster, um, and sometimes it it. It takes uh, significant dollars to go after the dollars that you've lost. And so depending upon, like the Nathan Green case, uh, that has been done relatively uh, inexpensively to try and get recovery of her $23,500. But um, that isn't isn't always the case. And so if you're resilient and you have – can identify resources that can help you, that's that's a a personal – uh, advantage, but I think the um, the individual who has been scammed, I think they have to kind of look in their own heart and see how much they want to put into trying to recover. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think. I mean, um, just thinking about some of the red flags. Now, to me, anything that you get in an email from from somebody that says they're in Nigeria and they have money to give you is a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> but what are, what are some of the other red flags? Because some, sometimes they're not so obvious. Well, for, from my perspective, I, I, I uh, was actually looking into uh, buying a car over the Internet. Uh, and um, No. <laughs> hey. It, 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 was, it was a thought. It was a thought. <laughs> but uh, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to see the car, and it, it turned out uh, the person I was corresponding with actually had the car in Florida. And I said, uh, hey, I'm going to be in Florida. I'd love to come see the car. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the answer was, well, the uh, the car is already on the loading dock. It's already packaged up. Uh, it's not uh, going to be possible to see it. And I said, oh, well, I'm going to be there anyway. Can I just, you know, <laughs> see it on the loading dock? And no, it's not possible. It's already being shipped. You know, there was always uh, there was always an excuse. And so it really became clear to me that this was not uh, someone I wanted to do uh, business with. Yeah. Well, for sure. So that, I mean, that's a, actually, that's really good, um, advice to somebody to uh, tell them to, to set up something like that. Even if you couldn't go to Florida, for example, it's well, a good thing have, to ask those questions. You can ask the questions and, and see what the response is. Uh, you might have a friend that can go, uh, check it out, uh, depending on the, the, uh, the physical location. Mm-hmm. Just other things to, uh, to reassure you that, uh, this really is, uh, this really is legitimate. 
also, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, everybody says this, um, it probably is. So um, uh, often people's egos kind of get wrapped around uh, an investment or because they've been introduced to to the um, fraudster by a friend, they assume that it's legitimate because of the means of introduction. So Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a tricky thing, you know. Well, and, you know, the beauty of, of what Bernie Madoff pulled off is when anybody wanted to invest, he, you know, he would say, oh, you know, no, I don't, we don't need any more investors. And he kind of pushed him away, which, of course, automatically makes people want to get more involved. Sure. So I can, I can, and I can see a lot of fraudsters doing that. Now, but what about investments? I mean, that seems to be um, a little bit more elusive than, like like I said, the Nigerian schemes, what would be a red flag that you would identify immediately with that? I um, My involvement is usually on corporate investments, as in joint venture partners, uh, investing in executive teams that you're wanting to um, merge into your existing business. So it's critical that you know who in the world you're dealing with. Um, okay, whether- so you're talking, excuse me, Olivia, yeah. you're talking about uh, somebody wants to to merge another company with yours exactly. and their experience and expertise? Yes, exactly. Okay. So if you're doing a joint venture or if you're acquiring another company, who is it that you're acquiring? I mean, what, what's the track record of these people? Right. And um, do you really want to do business with them? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of people uh, go ahead with the, with the transaction without really understanding who the players are. And... Um, uh, it's because obviously they think they know them and uh, feel comfortable with them, and then after the fact, everything um, unfolds. So it's really important to have an independent due diligence conducted not only on the business but on the people themselves. You always have to look at who's going to gain financially, don't you? You do. <laughs> that would be the key. Okay. Well, um, do you have anything more about um, – oh, I guess we're at the end of the hour. I got so involved here in, in talking about this amazing topic. We're at the end of the hour. So uh, thank you again, both of you, for being on the show today. Next week is Private Investigator Alan Mark coming to us from the United Kingdom to discuss PIs behaving badly and the fallout from Rupert Murdoch's News of the World and Sun Newspapers scandal. So tune in again next week as we declassify – more real stories from real investigators and real attorneys, Mark. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.